While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, he said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. He called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy, in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it, laid it away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap where you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his miner away from him, and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, and but as for the one who has nothing, even when even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do pray that uh, you would help us to focus now, both here and also next door in the hall, and uh, that as we uh, grow in our knowledge of you, that our hearts would be changed as well. Help us focus, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, uh, I want us to think about the word churchianity. Uh, it's, it's a word which I think kind of cracks open a topic which uh, really confronts every person who is a Christian. Um, what, what do you think that churchianity means? Um, what's, what, what, what do you think it is? Uh, when you think about it, the word is self-explanatory, isn't it? Because it's a, it's a religion which uh, replaces Christ with church. That's in, built into the name, churchianity. I wonder what churchianity would look like. Well, I guess the uh, obvious expressions of churchianity would be, uh, firstly, uh, for example, the person who comes to church on Sundays regularly, but uh, the, the rest of their lives, from uh, Monday through to Saturday, uh, you can't really tell much difference between them and uh, the non-Christians. So their attitudes, their values are pretty much the same as the world's, except that they go to church on Sundays. That's churchianity. Uh, here's another uh, illustration of it. 
Uh, how about the person whose uh, life very much does revolve around the church, but uh, not just on Sundays, but uh, throughout the week as well. They love being part of the community. They love the relationships. Uh, they love the, 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 the things that they can do in the church. They might even be employed by the church. Uh, it's, it's possible that they could be a minister in the church, but the reality is that the gospel of the death and the resurrection of Christ is not actually what makes them tick. Now, that's not Christianity, is it? That's churchianity. Uh, and uh, there are many examples of that. I didn't invent this word, by the way. I checked out the dictionary and the, the, uh, the Webster Dictionary says that uh, the first known use of the word churchianity was in 1837. Uh, I also discovered that Charles Haddon Spurgeon talked a lot about churchianity in his uh, sermons uh, in the 19th century. So it's been around for a couple of hundred years, but of course the actual issue has been around a lot longer than that, hasn't it? Now the issue is this. We might be people who belong to a church, but the question is what place does the gospel of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that crucial message, what place does that have and hold in our hearts? Now, Jesus uh, knew that this would always be an issue. And uh, so in Luke chapter 19, which you might want to have open up, Luke chapter 19, uh, surrounded by a group of people, uh, Jesus, the master communicator, hooks his audience by saying to them, let me tell you a story. We're going to look at that story today. It's uh, sometimes called the parable of the ten miners. But before we do, I want us to kind of take a step back and to think about the, the context, about what's going on in Jesus' ministry. Jesus was on a journey. Now, uh, Jesus had not always been on a journey, uh, even though a lot of his ministry was itinerant, moving from uh, place to place. Uh, it's only when you get to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 51, which is a turning point in Jesus' ministry, because Jesus, at that point, knew that his time had come. And in Luke 9, 51, it says, He resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. And so what you see in the Gospel of Luke is from that verse on, it's all about a pushing forward, a pushing forward in this journey towards Jerusalem. Uh, Luke 9, chapter 51. Now, when we get to the passage today in uh, chapter 19, verse 11, he's almost there. Have a look at uh, verse 11. In verse 11, uh, we're told that... I'll just have to flip it up myself here. Uh, in verse 11, it says, While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem... And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. All right, so why did Jesus start telling them this parable? He started telling them because 
expectation in the crowd had been mounting. Uh, they were now very close to Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, uh, back in verse 1, uh, just before this, it actually tells us where they were. They were in the town of Jericho. Uh, Jericho, I understand, is about 25 k's out of Jerusalem. And what were they expecting? Well, they thought that when Jesus rode into the city that uh, he would be crowned as a king, that the people would be mobilised around Jesus and that there would be a, a revolt, uh, that they would uh, push out the Romans and that uh, God's kingdom would be established. And you know what kind of kingdom they're talking about there, don't you? Yeah, and you can understand it. They're thinking, you know, the, the, the glory days of David, the glory days of King Solomon, you know, where the, the kingdom of God is focused in Jerusalem and uh, spreads out from there. And so Jesus now tells them this story. I'll, I'll recap the story for you. Uh, it's about a man from a noble family who goes on a journey to a distant land. And the reason that he goes on this journey is because he, he wants to be appointed as king. Before he goes, he summons ten of his servants and he gives each servant a sum of money. He gives them a what's called a minor, which I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a Greek uh, unit of currency. Uh, worth about three months' wages in those days. And in verse 13, which is critical, he, having given them each one miner, he commands them to put that miner to work, uh, to uh, put it into business, to trade with it, to invest with it, and so on, uh, and until he comes back. Now, Remember, the crowds expected that uh, Jesus would become king immediately when he got to Jerusalem, so that's a one-stage operation. But the reason he's telling them this parable is because he wants to correct their thinking. Because when you look at the parable, uh, there are actually three stages. Um, because first of all, the noble man departs, he goes on a journey. Secondly... Uh, whilst he's gone, his servants are commanded to put his money to work. And thirdly, one day he's going to come back again. So it's a three-stage operation. Now, who do you think he's talking about here, folks? Who's the, who's the noble man who becomes the king? It's, it's Jesus, right? He's not telling this because he just wants to tell him a nice story. He's talking about himself because people had a wrong view of the kingship of Jesus. Um, they thought that Jesus would become the king of a political kingdom, but the reason, in fact, why he's going to Jerusalem is because he knows in going to Jerusalem that he's going to die on a cross, uh, that he's going to pay the penalty for sin, and that uh, he's going to rise again from the dead, that he would ascend to heaven from where one day he would return. And so that's the kind of kingdom that Jesus is going to establish. Now, there is something which I think uh, is strange about this parable. I don't know if you thought the parable was strange when you read it or not. But here's the question. 
why would someone have to travel to a distant land in order to be appointed as the king of their own country? That doesn't make much sense, does it? If you're going to be king of a country, you get appointed king in that country. But um, in first century Judea, this is exactly what used to happen. Uh, remember, the Romans ruled Judea, and the Romans installed puppet kings who were Jewish people, but they installed puppet kings. Uh, remember, for example, King Herod. Remember the Herod that was king when Jesus was born, who went to Bethlehem and had all of the boys under two years of old, two years of age executed. Uh, well, in order for him to become king, he had to go and travel to Rome, where Caesar made him king. When he died, uh, his kingdom was split up between his three sons. And one of his sons was a fellow by the name of Herod Archelaus. Now, Herod Archelaus was not especially popular uh, because of some brutal things which he had done. And so before he was made king, a group of uh, representatives of the Jews uh, travelled to Rome in order to protest to Caesar Augustus and ask that this man not be installed as their king. And so when Jesus is telling this parable, he's connecting with the people because they understood exactly what he was talking about. That was their political context. But in this story, what attitude did people have towards their future king? Well, there's three attitudes. Let me list them. Uh, the first attitude is rejection. We see it in verse 14. Uh, there were some people who hated this noble man, and just like in the case of Herod Archelaus, they sent a delegation off to the distant land in order to protest uh, this person becoming their king. Now, although the comparison with Jesus um, slips at this point, doesn't it? Because Jesus is the opposite to Herod. Uh, he is, in fact, the perfect king. But what this tells us, this is a snap, a picture of the attitude of our world towards King Jesus. Uh, in our world, the vast majority of people reject Jesus as their king. Uh, they don't want Jesus to rule over their lives, and that's the nature of sin. And in verse 27, right at the end of the parable, the future for people who reject the king is very bleak. Very bleak. Now, the second attitude is faithfulness. In verses 15 to 19, what happened when the king returned home? Well, what happened was he uh, summoned his ten servants that he'd given money to in order to see what they had earned. Um, the first servant steps up and uh, he's able to say that he's put the money to work and he's taken one miner and with that one miner he's produced ten miners. He's... Uh, traded with it, he's done business, he's invested, whatever, but one has become 10. What's the percentage increase on that, by the way? Is that 1,000% uh, or 10,000? It's big, isn't it? If, if, if you could make your money tenfold, you would have done pretty well. The second servant steps forward and he's turned uh, one miner uh, into five miners and that's pretty impressive as well. By the way, the purpose of this was not 
that the man just wanted to grow rich. Uh, it was actually a recruitment test because what he's thinking is that when he becomes king, he wants to know who he can reliably put in charge of some big responsibilities. So he gives them this relatively minor responsibility to see how they go with it. And you can see that these guys, he says, right, you've done pretty well. I'm going to, in my kingdom, I'm going to put you in charge of cities. So it's a recruitment test, which one of them failed. Because the third attitude is the um, attitude of unfaithfulness. Let me read verse 20. In verse 20, then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. All right, so what's this bloke done with, with the money? Um, has he traded with it? No. Has he invested it? No. Uh, he's done nothing with it. Oh, actually, he has done something. He's got a piece of cloth, maybe a big handkerchief or a tea towel or something or other, and he's put it inside and he's wrapped it up nicely and he's, he's tucked it away and uh, left it there. If you, if you could give him any credit, he's at least protected it. <laughs> he hasn't invested it. He hasn't traded with it. He's protected with it. And is he sorry about that? Well, no, he's not sorry. He doesn't say, look, I'm terribly sorry. I haven't done anything with your money. Uh, instead, what he does is he, he turns the torch, uh, the flame, onto his master and he blames him. Uh, by the way, guilty people, uh, if they're not repentant, they always blame the innocent, don't they? And that's what this bloke does. He says, look, I know what kind of man you are. You're a person who... You know, you, you earn money, you want money for doing nothing. And so, you know, that's the kind of person you are. So it's your fault. And the master says, well, hang on a moment. I mean, all right, let's assume that that's true. If you think that I am a person who wants to get money from doing nothing, then why didn't you go and put my money on deposit? And at least you could have earned some interest if you know that that's the kind of person I am. Now, they didn't have banks like we have banks, of course. Uh, what they did have was um, uh, money, uh, money lenders who would sit uh, uh, in the marketplace. They'd, they'd set up a bench in the marketplace and you could go to the money lender and you could deposit some money there which he'd lend out. You can, that's where our banks have... Uh, derived from. In fact, here's a bit of trivia for you. The English word bank comes from an old word which means bench. It's the money changers bench. Uh, that's what a bank is. There's some trivia for you. So let's get back into the text, shall we? Uh, in verse 21, this servant has failed the test and therefore he would not be given any responsibility in the kingdom and uh, the small responsibility that he did have is going to be taken away from him and given to someone who's more responsible. So that's the parable in a nutshell, folks. The question, therefore, then is what does this mean for us? Uh, how does it connect to our lives?
Well, Jesus doesn't tell us the meaning. You know, some parables, he says, look, the disciples say, hang on, what did you mean by that? And he said, well, all right, let me just spell it out for you. Uh, He doesn't do that here. And Jesus tells parables in order to provoke us to think, uh, to provoke us to search, to provoke us to dig a bit deeper. And so why don't we do that? Uh, It's fairly clear, isn't it, that the, uh, the, the king is Jesus. So the question I have, therefore, is what is a minor? What does that represent? I wonder what you think it represents. Um, I am sure that there would be some businessmen and women out there who would say, there you go. This is the scriptural justification that God wants us to have money and to invest the money and to do business with the money and to grow our money and become rich. I think we need to think a bit more deeply about it than that, personally. Uh, What do you think is the valuable possession which Jesus has left with us? It is the... It's the gospel, isn't it? It's the great message about his death and his resurrection. It's the message about forgiveness, about changed lives, about eternal life. It's the message by which God grows his kingdom. Um, Think about a couple of passages. For example, Matthew chapter 28. Uh, Right at the very end, before Jesus leaves his servants to go on his journey to heaven... Uh, He calls his disciples together and he speaks to them and he says, Go, go and preach the gospel. Go and make and baptise people in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Go and make disciples of men. That's the instruction. And teach them to obey everything that I've said. That's the instructions that he gives before he departs to heaven to be with his father where he will rule, where he rules. Um, Think about um, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In that passage, Paul, when he's describing the gospel, says that the gospel is uh, is a treasure which is carried around in clars of jay. I always get that wrong. In jars of clay. Did that in the nine o'clock service as well. <laughs> All right, let's just roll with that. He we carries 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 it around in in uh, uh, jars of clars of jay, <laughs> and that's us because you know we are weak, uh, we are very weak, but the gospel is strong. The gospel is powerful because it is that message which we carry, which has the power to save people from hell it has the power to change lives it has the power uh, to grow god's wealth to grow his treasure to grow the kingdom and you and i we have been entrusted with that gospel message so jesus has left and one day he will return and you and i we live in that in between period don't we that's where and the question therefore is well what are we doing with the treasure that is left for us the gospel well it's possible to be people whose religion is churchianity 
to be like the servant who's got the treasure but who kind of wraps it up neat and tidy and kind of stores it away and maybe brings it out on Sunday and polishes it up and then puts it back in on uh, Sunday night. But the gospel makes no difference in their lives. And the reason that you'd be a person who's involved in churchianity is because, in essence, by the way that you treat the gospel, by the way you live, it shows that you do not actually believe that the king is going to come back again. You don't believe that you're going to meet this king and you're going to have to give an account. Because if you truly believe that, then you'd get working with, with what he's left, wouldn't you? So there are two ways that we can make use of the gospel, very broadly speaking. And I want to just express these two ways uh, for you. Firstly, the gospel ought to be at work changing our own personal character. Uh, I wonder if you can turn with me to Titus chapter 2 for a moment. Uh, you'll find Titus after 2 Timothy. Um, so that's on about page 844. Let me read to you these verses and think about uh, what, how we ought to be living as we wait for Jesus to return. So pick it up at uh, Titus chapter 2 verse 11. <clears throat> Everyone got that? Okay. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's the gospel. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all of the wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Right? That's the passage. Um, what is it that we are waiting for in this present age? We are waiting for the glorious return of the King, our great God and Saviour, Jesus that's what we're waiting for. And therefore, as we wait for him, how should the gospel be productive in our lives? Well, what does Paul say there? He says, well, firstly, we ought to be people who are saying no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. Say no to that. Put off the old self. And we ought to be people who are saying yes to living self-controlled, upright and godly lives to put on the new self as we wait for the glorious return of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Because he gave himself up for us to redeem us, to purchase us. So that's how we ought to be living. And what, it, what that tells us is that the gospel is therefore to be, to be bearing fruit in our character, in who we are. So that, uh, you know, we're not like the fig tree that Jesus saw as he was approaching Jerusalem and he said, hey, there's no fruit on it and he cursed it. When Jesus returns, will he see fruit in our lives? Are we changing? Are we becoming more like him? That's the work of the gospel. Secondly, in our own different ways, 
uh, we are to be engaged in spreading the gospel and serving other people. I want to give you a sort of a, an example of this. Uh, I wonder if you can come with me to Romans chapter 16 for a moment. This will be our last passage and then we'll uh, come into the conclusion. In Romans chapter 16, uh, here we have a snapshot of the church in Rome. And I'm not talking about some grand cathedral building. I'm talking about the people. Uh, the ordinary Christians in the church in Rome. Paul's finished his letter to them and he wants to write and say, hey guys, um, here's a few people that I want to really encourage and uh, give thanks to God for. And it seems like he lists half the congregation. Have a look at what he has to say. Everyone got that? Uh, Romans chapter 16. For example, verse 3. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my, how does he describe them? My fellow workers. In Christ Jesus, he says, they risked their lives for me. Um, verse 6, greet Mary who worked very hard for you. Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junius. Don't you love those Latin names? They're terrific, aren't they? Andronicus and Junius. Uh, my relatives who've been in prison with me. They're in prison for the sake of the gospel. Uh, verse 9, Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Verse 11, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, uh, those women who work hard in the Lord. You, you get the idea there, don't you? Don't need to go on. These are not people who've kind of received the gospel and they've gone and wrapped it up and made it nice and tidy and you know, wrapped it up in a piece of cloth and they've kind of stored it away and uh, they'll turn up at church on Sunday. No, that, that's not who they are at all. Uh, they, are, they are working uh, in, not just in the church. You see that he doesn't say that they're working in the church. They are working in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are engaged. They are active. They are multiplying the treasure. Uh, this is not churchianity, is it? This is Christianity. Active and engaged. Now, uh, we all have different abilities. And uh, some people have unique opportunities. Uh, I started to think about all of the ways that people in our church are serving the Lord uh, actively in their workplace, uh, in their families, in the church, uh, and so on. And uh, I've got to tell you, it's a pretty long list. Uh, and it ranges from the people who... Are, I know people in our church who are bedridden. You don't see them in church because they can't come to church anymore. But they spend their time reading the Bible and praying for people and encouraging anyone who comes uh, to, to see them. Uh, there's a multitude of people involved in tasks in the church, uh, serving in different ways. There's lots of behind-the-scenes caring for people that's going on. There are people who are teaching young people in the schools uh, uh, through work as school teachers and in scripture classes and, and Sunday school and chaplaincy work and so on. There's a whole stack of people who are just uh, encouraging those in the... Con I could go on. But you get the picture, don't you? It's not about churchianity, it's Christianity. It's about using our abilities 
uh, in order to, to be engaged in this great work. Now let me finish off with a story. It's um, uh, a story a friend of mine told me a couple of months ago and I've just kind of been uh, looking forward to an opportunity to share it with you. And it fits in pretty nicely with what we're talking about here. It's a story about uh, uh, an ordinary Christian and, and her husband putting the gospel to work. So here it goes. How do you feel when you're at home and the telephone rings, you answer the phone and the person on the other end has got a foreign accent and it's pretty obvious that they're wanting to sign you up for a great deal? How do you feel when that happens? Does it happen to you? Yeah, okay. Well, this friend of Cassie and mine, she decided to change her attitude. And so uh, she prayed. One day she prayed and she said, Dear God, I'd really, would you please make it so that a telemarketer phones me up today? What do you think happened that day? Phone rang. Uh, there was a telemarketer calling from India. And uh, he um, introduced himself and he asked how her day was and she said, I am really, really glad that you found me. Now, after he picked himself up off the floor, <clears throat> after his shock that someone would say that to him, she said to him, because I've actually got some really great news that I want to share with you. I want to tell you about a friend of mine whose name is Jesus. And she went on to uh, talk to this guy about how Jesus uh, was God's son and how he had changed her life. Now, the, the fellow seemed to actually be interested. Uh, he had had uh, some experience with a church in India and, uh, and he had some questions some issues that he needed to uh, resolve. And so he asked her some questions about God and she started try trying to answer and explain his questions until suddenly the uh, phone conversation was discontinued. And, and you can guess what had happened. His supervisor had been listening in and had pulled the plug on the conversation. My friend was a bit disappointed about that, but she thought at least I've had a chance to raise uh, the issue of God and Jesus with this man. That night, uh, the phone rang again. It was the same man. He said, look, um, I'm, I'm not phoning from work. I hope you don't mind, but I'm phoning from my home. And uh, the reason is that nobody has ever spoken to me uh, in the way that you did today. And uh, I have more questions that I need to resolve about God and uh, could, we have a, could we talk about it please? And she said, great, it's um, terrific that you phoned back. Um, let me just put my husband on the line um, because he'd love to uh, talk that through further with you. And uh, so man had a conversation with the husband and uh, they were able to talk to him about Jesus. They were able to refer him to some helpful uh, websites that he could look up um, and uh, encourage him to get along to a church that uh, teaches the gospel and teaches the Bible. 
Now, they were just, um, the reason I share this is, you know, look, it'd be great if we all went home and prayed that a telemarketer would phone up and we did that, but it's, it's the principle that counts, isn't it? Uh, because these are just ordinary Christians. They, 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 they just work in a hardware shop in a small country town in Australia. But there they were, actually helping a man living on another continent uh, to get to know more about Jesus and uh, the salvation that comes through the gospel. Don't know where that uh, ended up. Don't know what's happened. It's in God's hands. But the principle is this that uh, don't wrap the treasure up in a cloth and store it away. Put it to use and pray for opportunities and take the opportunities. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, this uh, great treasure, which is the gospel. We pray that we would not be into churchianity, but that we would be into Christianity that we would be people who, as we wait for the glorious return of the King, that uh, we uh, would allow the gospel to be changing and shaping our lives in terms of our character, that we would be more like King Jesus. And, Father, that we would not be uh, hiding it, um, that we would put that gospel to use, that we would... uh, Father, we pray that you would just grant us opportunities and that we would take those opportunities. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.